Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. President Biden slaps heavy sanctions on Russia after he officially acknowledges Putin's actions as an invasion of Ukraine. Officials expect the conflict to escalate in the days ahead. We bring you the latest from Washington, D.C. Today, a conclusion to the Arbery hate crimes trial, a Georgia jury finding all three men guilty of federal hate crimes. And the three men convicted could face life in prison. As tensions rise in Eastern Europe, the FBI and others are now preparing for possible cyber attacks that could cripple entire cities. And Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is facing calls to resign. 14 attorneys general say he's failing to secure the border and allowing dangerous criminals to stay in the country. The White House is describing events in Ukraine as the beginning of a Russian invasion. President Biden responded today by hitting Russia with sanctions. President Biden at the White House responding to Putin's swift and bold moves and his declaration that two regions in Ukraine were independent. To put it simply, Russia just announced that it is carving out a big chunk of Ukraine. Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries Biden's now imposing sanctions on two large Russian financial institutions, effectively cutting off Russia's government from Western financing. And the White House is sanctioning individuals, Russian elites and their families. He's setting up a rationale to take more territory by force, in my view. On Tuesday, Putin approved for his military to use force outside of Russia. There are articles saying about us providing those republics help, including military help. As long as there is an ongoing conflict, by this decision we are making it clear that if necessary, we intend to stand by our obligations. And if Russia goes further, Biden says the U.S. has a plan to go further too. The U.K. has sanctioned five Russian banks and three Russian billionaires. And Germany is halting the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, one of the most severe measures so far. The European Union imposed sanctions too, calling today one of the darkest days in modern European history. The European Union has created an incredible success with the integration who were formerly um, under uh, communist control, who are now full-fledged and free European nations. I don't want my grandchildren to grow up in a world where Europe has another Iron Curtain. Ukraine today reported two troops were killed in an eastern shilling, and 18 others were injured. But despite the White House's grim warning of more escalation in the days ahead, Ukraine's president welcomes the sanctions but is skeptical of war. We believe that there won't be a large-scale war against Ukraine, and there won't be a large-scale escalation from the Russians. But if there is one, then we will impose martial law. Biden is now sending more U.S. troops to the Baltic states to strengthen NATO's defenses in the area. And those U.S.-Russia talks that were scheduled for later this week are now officially canceled. And while President Biden says he still hopes for diplomacy, it's looking like those talks of diplomacy are now coming to a close. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. What is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? What does it do? And what does it mean for Europe and the U.S.? NTD's Allison Lee has the details. 
Nord Stream 2 is an undersea natural gas pipeline that connects Russia with Germany. Construction began in 2018 and was completed by late last year. It's expected to transport close to 4 trillion cubic feet of gas to the European Union per year. That's twice as much gas compared to an earlier undersea pipeline called Nord Stream 1. It's also significant because it bypasses older land pipelines that go through Ukraine and Poland, a NATO ally. Europe needs the pipeline because they haven't been producing as much gas domestically, and there's a growing need for affordable natural gas, which is cleaner than other fossil fuels. Europe currently imports roughly 35% of its natural gas from Russia without Nord Stream 2. Behind the project is Russian state-owned gas giant Gazprom. The company's profits support the Russian government budget. Former German Chancellor Angela Merkel approved the deal with Russia, but then-President Trump has been against it for making Europe more reliant on Russian energy. Ukraine and Poland are also against the deal. They feared that the pipeline would give Russia geopolitical leverage over Europe. Back in 2019, construction of the pipeline was suspended when Trump sanctioned the project's investors. It didn't resume until President Biden took office. Last July, the Biden administration signed a deal with Germany, allowing the pipeline to be completed. In return, Germany agreed to take action against Russia if Russia ever uses gas as a weapon or attacks Ukraine. But in Congress, both Republicans and Democrats have been against Nord Stream 2 for a long time. Analysts say Russia is unlikely to cut off gas supplies to Europe in retaliation because Russian gas giants and the European market are interdependent. Europe is now trying to diversify its gas supplies. Allison Lee, NTD News. Different U.S. entities are now preparing for possible cyber attacks from Russia. One main target could be New York City's financial sector. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from Manhattan. According to Newsweek, the FBI sent an alert to the private sector warning of possible cyber attacks from Russia. And here in New York, officials are gearing up for any potential attacks by setting up the nation's first statewide cybersecurity center. The first in the nation statewide joint security operations center. That is where we are today. And this is going to be the nerve center for our cyber operations. We bring all the talent together. We just heard from President Biden moments ago on uh, the advancing troops from Russia. Uh, we can no longer act independently. The governor says it's crucial that the state government works together with cities and the private sector, even with small businesses, sharing information about cyber attacks so they can be prevented. It is information sharing. This is the bottom line. Dr. Tariq Sadawi is the co-director of the Cybersecurity Master's Program at the City University of New York. He says cybercrime can be prevented. We have to all share any small thing hacking, hack, hacking happens, it should be shared among the community so that we all know the characteristic, the features, and, and we get prepared to it. So what's the governor's advice for the everyday citizen? Change your passwords. Be prepared. Act as if you know that attack is coming. This is the warning. This is the warning in light of what's happening globally. Just last week, Ukraine experienced what they described as the largest cyber attack against their country yet. Banks and government websites were hacked. The White House says Russia was behind that attack. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. Republican attorneys general in 14 states are calling for Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas to resign. Leading the effort is Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody. 
In a news release, Moody says through his refusal to enforce federal laws, including deporting criminals and maintaining order at the border, he has put America and our respective states on the verge of a national security crisis. The attorneys general pointed out a 70% drop in deportations last year, including dangerous criminals. Moody added that drug cartels and human smugglers take advantage of the open borders, with twice as many sex offenders entering the country illegally. And a judge has shielded two military officers from termination. This means for now they're able to work without being vaccinated. Both accused the Pentagon of unjustly denying their religious exemptions to the vaccine policy. NTD's Miguel Moreno has that story. Two military officers at risk of being fired for refusing COVID-19 vaccines have been given legal protection. A federal judge has granted them a preliminary injunction, which means they are protected. They don't have to take their COVID shots and they cannot be retaliated against. Matthew Staver is the founder of Liberty Council, the nonprofit representing the two unnamed service members. Staver says his clients are Christians who believe the vaccine would defile their bodies. One is in the Navy, the other in the Marine Corps. Both submitted religious exemption requests, but were denied. What are you accusing the military of doing exactly? The military has been engaging in unlawful activity, and I think that's why this judge sharply rebuked the military and said that if there's any imposition on the military, it's of its own making by violating the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The military is using rubber stamp processes, using magic words such as it has a compelling interest without articulating specifically what that interest is. And that doesn't fly under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Supporting Staver's accusation, the judge said he found a rubber stamp process in reviewing exemption denial forms. He says each denial letter from the Navy that he read said, in part, vaccination of Navy personnel can impact both individual and unit mission accomplishment. It reduces the risk to the individual for disease-related performance impairment, and it reduces the risk to the unit for disease outbreaks of contagious diseases such as COVID-19. The Department of Justice hasn't gotten back to us. The religious exemption process, the religious accommodation request, is a sham. It's a predetermined result. CNN says it reviewed military data in February. They found that out of some 16,000 religious exemption requests, only 15 have been approved. Liberty Council represents dozens of other plaintiffs alongside the two protected military officers. It has asked the judge to grant the same immunity to others until the case is over. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Today, a jury found the three men who killed Ahmad Arbery guilty of a federal hate crime charge. Backing the prosecutor's case that the men chased the 25-year-old through the streets of a neighborhood because he was black. NTD's Chenny Wu gives us the details. Two years after the death of Ahmad Arbery, the three men who killed him were found guilty on all counts in a federal hate crimes trial. I, as a mom, will never heal. After deliberating for about four hours, the jury convicted Gregory McMichael, Travis McMichael and William Roddy Bryan Tuesday of interference of rights, a federal hate crime and attempted kidnapping. They gave us a sense of, sense of a small victory, but we as a family would never get victory because our mother's gone forever. The McMichaels were also found guilty of an additional firearms charge for using and carrying a firearm during a crime of violence. 
The jury on Tuesday found that the men attempted to chase Arbery and attempted to unlawfully confine him using their trucks as he jogged through their neighborhood outside Brunswick, Georgia in February 2020. No one should fear being attacked or threatened because of what they look like, where they are from, whom they love, or how they worship. All three men could now receive sentences of up to life in prison and heavy fines for the federal convictions. They're currently serving life sentences after being previously convicted of murdering Arbery in a separate state trial, although they have said they plan to appeal. Chenny Wu, NTD News. The Port of Los Angeles reported the busiest January in its 115-year history. Though exports are still low, the port is expecting to have more work ahead in the coming months. Here's more. The Port of Los Angeles is expecting a busy summer shipping season as retailers restock depleted inventory, the port's director said. Quarter two more commonly is known as our slack season in the trans-Pacific trade. But as I've mentioned, retailers continue to tell us that they're gonna focus that time in quarter two on replenishing these inventory levels. And that gives us a chance to keep this caravan of cargo moving. While a lower number of ships from Asian manufacturers came in during the Lunar New Year, the port says it saw its busiest January since it opened. Soroka said the port processed nearly 900,000 containers last month, a 3.6% increase over last year. Nearly half of the ships serviced last month were not the standard large container ships, but smaller ones hired by retailers. They carry less cargo, but require the same amount of time, Soroka said. 24 of those 87 vessels were ad hoc or unscheduled. So what's been added into the mix is a combination of smaller ships that have been not part of our traditional weekly services. Empty containers also piled up with 64,000 unused boxes now at the port. We're monitoring our empty counts daily and we're looking for even more progress in this area. At the same time, exports are down. Meanwhile, exports continue their abominable slide, showing a nearly 16% decline year on year. The port is exploring ways to aggregate and streamline exports and encourage more rail shipping. They are also looking at identifying terminals for fast lane concepts for dairy and agricultural products. Over the weekend, Shen Yun returned to Philadelphia with 10 performances. Federal, state and city officials welcomed back the performers with letters and proclamations. They praised the production's efforts to revive the 5,000 years of Chinese civilization. I thought it was absolutely fabulous. It far exceeded my expectations. I think it was absolutely amazing to be able to sit here and witness history of the making real time. And Pennsylvania State Representative Regina Young brought her daughter to the performance and thanked Chen Yun for the bravery to show China before communism. The courage, the um, vibrant colors, the history, the smiles, the amazing opportunities that people were able to just forge through to at least make their voices heard today. Shen Yun will be giving performances in Philadelphia till the 27th of February. Audiences say they were captivated by the production. Oh my goodness, uh, the physicality, the colors, and you could just see the, uh, the time and the practice that has gone into this, the dedication that has gone into this has just been, uh, it's just been absolutely magnificent. Spectacular and they were so coordinated, it was just perfect.
Audiences say the performance is not only entertaining, but also educational. What I learned is not only the beauty of the culture, but the deep-rooted tradition. Shen Yun's mission is to bring back China's 5,000 years of civilization, which is said to be divinely inspired. And I believe that this message today in this particular show is a reminder that you were intentionally made on purpose and you have some great things to do while you're here on this earth. NTD News, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Coming up, a formerly white congregation in North Carolina merged with an African-American church. The pastors and churchgoers say it's an effort to bring about racial harmony in the American South. And the best teams in the NBA's Eastern Conference will soon contend for the title. With seven weeks till the playoffs, who's expected to come out on top? We'll bring you that and more on NTD News. Fencing is being put up around the U.S. Capitol again. What will it look like? And will it impact the trucker convoys heading for Washington, D.C.? NTD's Iris Tao has more. A seven-foot fence will be reinstalled right behind me around the Capitol. This, as police say, they are aware of trucker convoys coming to Washington around the same time as the State of the Union address slated for next week. The fence is the same barrier that surrounded the Capitol for months after January 6 last year. It wasn't removed until July, and in September, it was temporarily reinstalled for a justice for January 6 rally. Now it's coming back as truckers are heading here. Well, we want our rights, the cheaper fuel, better existence for our people in this country, more respect for the transportation industry, and the guys that are pounding their butt up and down the road every night while people are home sleeping, delivering those goods. The Capitol Police said in a statement that they are working closely with the Secret Service to plan for Biden's upcoming speech. They say it's to facilitate lawful demonstrations of free speech. But Bob Bolas, the organizer of one of the trucker convoys heading to Washington this week, says the fencing has no point. They precipitated and created the problem. But the stupidity that I'm seeing, the idiotic idi idiots think we're going to drive a tractor trailer into the Capitol and go visit Pelosi. Meanwhile, Marine Steel, an organizer for a different convoy, the People's Convoy, tells us this. First, um, we don't know anyone in the Freedom Convoy. The gentleman, Bob Bolas, we have never spoken to him. We don't know who he is, and he has no affiliation with the People's Convoy. Um, and I just wanted to make that clear. Um, certain he's a patriot as well, but um, we're just a different, a completely different entity. The People's Convoy is set to start on Wednesday in Southern California. They hope to make it to Washington on March 5th, a few days after Biden's address. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And we'll have daily on-the-ground coverage of the American Truckers Convoy as they travel across the country from California to Washington, D.C., right here on NTD News. More than five years ago, Refuge Church, a formerly white congregation in North Carolina, merged with an African-American church. The move was an effort to be an example of unity and racial reconciliation in the American South. Here's more. April and Troy Savage and their two children are part of an experiment at the Refuge Church in Kannapolis, North Carolina. 
This formerly predominantly white congregation merged with an African-American church in an attempt to use religion as a vehicle for racial reconciliation in the South. It's been said that the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning at 11, you know, um, and it's true because we work together, you know, different races, different eth ethnicities, cultures. We work together every day. We have our, our different friends that we go, we hang out, social gatherings. And then on Sunday morning, we do this and we go our separate ways. Jonathan and Summer Daniel and their four children joined the church six years ago, just before the merger with the African-American church. I believe overall the average American does want unity. You know, I, I you know, are the racist people? Absolutely. Um, and there's always gonna be racist people. Um, but I believe as a, as a whole, America does wanna see unity. Daniel says that everyone he talked to thought that the joining of the churches was a really good thing. However, transition to this church was difficult for the Savage family. Now I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, not everybody understands it. Some people, you know, they may not say it out of their mouth, but they feel like, oh, like you abandon your people because <laughs> you're going to this predominantly, you know, white ministry or whatever, however you want to classify it. But we choose to not look at it that way. We choose to look at it as this is the kingdom of God and it's the kingdom that brings us together. We all believe the same. Derek Hawkins was the lead pastor at the African-American church and helped spearhead the merger with the Refuge Church. You know, faith in the African-American community has always been all we had. And so we, we lean to what I knew to do is just to always result and seeking the spirit of God for unity. We can't do it in our own ability. There's never been a policy created, any speech that's able to unite. It's only the power and the presence of God that unites us. Jay Stewart is the lead pastor at the Refuge Church and worked with Derek Hawkins to unite their churches. And, and for us, a part of our purpose is be a demonstration of unity, be a demonstration of racial reconciliation in a nation that has been so divided for way too long and we get the privilege of walking out this purpose. Although the church is still a work in progress, to the Savage and Daniel families, it is a real commitment to racial harmony. Female soccer players and the U.S. Soccer Federation have reached a $24 million equal pay settlement. For around six years, the players have argued that they are unfairly paid less than their male counterparts. And TD's Faye Quarter has more. A big victory for 61 female soccer players. A group from the U.S. Women's National Team and the U.S. Soccer Federation have reached a $24 million settlement, ending a legal fight that began in 2019. This settlement pertains to the issue of back pay. The women were claiming that they were owed as much as $66 million in back pay. Uh, of course, the settlement of $24 million is a very significant amount. Rishi Sagal is a partner at Romano Law. Sagal says the two sides seem happy with that amount. The battle began six years ago when five-star players accused U.S. soccer of gender wage discrimination. U.S. soccer immediately responded that men earn more because they bring in more money, but their stance brought public backlash. Women's soccer um, pales in comparison in terms of its popularity to men's soccer, and that's the reason 
Economists say they traditionally have not been as well paid. Matthew Vadum is a quartz reporter for the Epic Times. Vadum says the market should decide the amount of pay. It's unclear exactly how big the revenue gap is, but FIFA estimates over 1 billion people watched the 2019 Women's World Cup, while 3.5 billion watched the 2018 men's tournament. Even if they make more money, you can't just throw all the revenue at the men's soccer team. Ron Zambrano is the employment chair at West Coast Employment Lawyers. Zambrano says the revenue should be distributed more evenly. Diana Patton is a former civil rights attorney. Patton says the settlement will have a wide impact. This is going to transcend not just U.S. soccer, it is going to transcend into other sports, basketball, golf, you name it. And the deal isn't final. It only takes effect when the U.S. women's team and U.S. soccer agree to a new collective bargaining agreement. The current bargaining agreement expires on March 31st. Faye Quarter, NTD News. With approximately seven weeks left in the NBA's regular season, the Eastern Conference is still wide open. But some team has to represent the conference in the finals. NTD's Dave Martin breaks down the contenders. The reigning champion Milwaukee Bucks got off to a slow start and are still adjusting to the loss of starting center Brooke Lopez. At 36-24, and 24, they currently sit in fifth place in the East but are just two and a half games out of the top spot. Yet they've split their last 22 games now since the start of the new year. For their next five games, they were at home, making this a good time to make their move. Miami currently sits tied at the top with Chicago. The Heat's move to bring in veteran guard Kyle Lowry has paid dividends as Lowry kept the team afloat when Jimmy Butler was out last November and into December. With both of them on the court, they've won six of their last seven. The surprising Bulls brought in DeMar DeRozan and Lonzo Ball this past offseason to team with their young nucleus and the move has paid off. DeRozan was named an All-Star for the fifth time, Ball's an improved three-point shooter, and the Bulls are in line for their first playoff spot in five years. The Sixers, like the Cavs and Bucks, are just two and a half games out of the top spot. But Philly just made the biggest move of the season by getting former MVP James Harden in a trade for Ben Simmons. With Harden teaming up with MVP candidate Joel Embiid, Philadelphia has the best one-two punch in the league. Cleveland hasn't been to the playoffs since LeBron James left four years ago, but their decision to start three seven-footers has paid off. Lori Markkinen, Jared Allen, and Rookie of the Year candidate Evan Mobley were all acquired in the past 13 months and have slowed offenses with their size and agility. Meanwhile, guard Darius Garland made his first all-star team and is only 22. The Boston Celtics have played their way into consideration, winning nine of their last 10 games. Meanwhile, general manager Brad Stevens was thrilled to add versatile guard Derek White at the trade deadline. Finally in Brooklyn, the Nets didn't necessarily get better by trading Harden, but in Simmons, they certainly get younger, have a great defensive player, and recoup two of the first-rounders they lost in originally acquiring Harden. If Kevin Durant can come back soon from a knee injury, Simmons gets acclimated quickly to his new team, and Kyrie Irving's status resolved, the Nets have as much talent as anyone. Dave Martin, NTD News. A college basketball coach was suspended Monday for punching another coach. And an update on the current impasse holding up the Major League Baseball season. And today's Dave Martin with the updates. Michigan head coach Juwan Howard has been suspended five games, which is the rest of the regular season, after punching Wisconsin assistant coach Joe Krabenhoff after Sunday's game, the Big Ten announced. Howard was also fined $40,000. Wisconsin head coach Greg Gard was fined $10,000 for violating the conference's sportsmanship policy. The mayhem came in the handshake line following Wisconsin's 14-point win over Michigan. 
The incident prompted the idea to do away with the handshake line altogether, something Michigan State head coach Tom Izzo said he's not a fan of because it avoids a teachable moment. Izzo said that's not happening here. So if some team doesn't want to shake hands, you're going to see 15 of my guys walk down and shake air. We're going to shake air, and I'm going to shake air, and then we're going to leave. Major League Baseball, currently shut down due to an owner's lockout, has set a February 28 date for a new deal to be worked out in order for the regular season to stay in line for a March 31st start. Among the issues to be worked out are higher salaries for players in their pre-arbitration years, as well as a draft lottery system that will be designed to keep teams from losing on purpose in order to get a higher pick. Dave Martin, NTD News. Coming up, couples are amused by today's unique date and are taking the opportunity to tie the knot. It's a rare date because of its sequence of twos, and so some consider it lucky. A California state lawmaker is seeking to create a bill of rights for pets. Local pet owners have differing views on the bill. That and more after the break on NTD News. chances of the day, month, and year having the same digits? What about the chances of it landing on the day that sounds like that number, like Tuesday? Some people are making this day extra memorable. NTD's David Lamb reports. This is the San Mateo County Clerk's Office and the date is February 22nd, 2022. It's a special date and some couples are making it more memorable by choosing to get married. Several county clerk's offices in the Bay Area extended their office hours for couples getting married on this date. It's a palindrome when the digits read the same forwards and backwards, which makes it easy to remember. You know, lots of TV shows, there's always a problem with the husband for getting the date. Now I don't have an excuse because 222, that'll be ingrained in my memory. <laughs> we didn't think of like, oh, let's have to get married on this day. But we thought that, oh, we looked it up actually just a couple of weeks ago, and then it's available here. And then we thought, oh, let's book an appointment first. This couple just got their wedding license and certificate. Chen says her lucky number is two, and they plan to have their wedding ceremony on Friday, which is also Chen's birthday. Whether it's, uh, you know, the highs of life or even the lowest lows, that you have someone that you can share those things with and will be there with you no matter what. The clerk's office told NTD that they usually hold four to five weddings per day. But on days like Valentine's and today, it can go up to 20. You now have a partner with you that's going to share life's experiences. You now transformed yourself from an individual to a couple. A couple that is going to share the future, a couple that is going to have plans. The rest of the month also consists of palindrome dates. Irizari says February 22nd is what's called an auspicious day. He says according to folklore, it brings happiness, health, and longevity for those who get married. David Lamb, Entity News, California. Has your pet ever told you it wished for more rights? A Southern California lawmaker's pet apparently has. A new bill seeks to establish a bill of rights for the state's furry companions. NTD Cynthia Kai spoke with some dog owners to hear more about the needs of their four-legged friends. Can you speak? Oh, no, he's not going to say anything today. 
Assembly Bill 1881, also known as the Animal Welfare Dog and Cat Bill of Rights, would give pets the right to health care, shelter, nutritious food, be free from abuse, and more. But pet owners have differing views on the bill. I think that we need them as pet owners because dogs are part of our lives and we're a part of theirs and 100% I'm all for it. Some say they support the bill if it can actually ensure pet owners are responsible for their pets and reduce the number of neglected pets in shelters. Uh, if you look at the kind of shelters we have in the Bay Area and the number of dogs there are, there are definitely a lot of neglected dogs. Uh, we find that a lot of pet owners don't really understand what it means to be a pet parent or a pet owner. They end up uh, wanting somebody for company and they end up adopting a pet, but sometimes they don't have the full capacity to take care of the pets. Others see the bill as unnecessary. It seems common sense that, that people who have pets should treat them a certain way. They should be, you know, well taken care of. and, and so. It's funny that there's even the thought that you would need a bill for that. The legislation text also states that pets have a right to be sprayed or neutered to reduce the state's dog and cat overpopulation. Assemblyman Miguel Santiago, a pet owner, introduced the bill on February 8th. He says the bill is also in response to the millions of dollars spent every year to control a growing number of cats and dogs. If passed, every rescue group and animal association will be required to post the Bill of Rights for public view. Those who fail to do so will be fined up to $250. So in terms of compliance, I don't think being punitive is the right approach. I, I would tell you that it's better to give people maybe a caution and, and advise them of the laws, but to, to find somebody and $250 is quite a big, quite, quite a big, uh, Asking. Another person said a fine might be a good deterrent to people neglecting pets. If you're taking the responsibility of adopting a pet, uh, I think it comes with that kind of responsibility. Uh, like I said, a lot of people tend to not take care of their pets. Uh, so I think this would be a good deterrent to people to just abandon their pets. The bill did not specify how the law would be enforced. People at the dog park also questioned the enforceability. So who's going to turn the people in? Are you going to have pet patrol police? Are you going to have common citizens turning people in? Because I don't think people are inclined to do that. The bill is currently in the Assembly Committee on Business and Professions and is waiting for a first-time read. Cynthia Kai, NTD News, California. For a few weeks, beekeepers rent out truckloads of honeybees to farmers to pollinate crops. But due to beehive thefts, beekeepers are turning to technology to protect their precious colonies. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. The past few weeks, more than 300 hives were reported stolen in the San Joaquin Valley, loot that's worth tens of thousands of dollars. Sadly, people have gotten more into theft because the business and the industry has grown so much and people think they can make a quick, easy buck by stealing hives and putting them into pollination. Close to 400 more vanished from a field in Mendocino County, prompting the state's Beekeeper Association to offer a $10,000 reward. A few days later, authorities recovered the boxes of bees 20 miles away. One suspect was arrested. Sadly, beekeepers are the other ones, are the only people stealing bees from other beekeepers. Um, you have to have specialized equipment. Um, it's not something that's a random act, it's very calculated. So some beekeepers are starting to equip hive boxes with GPS-enabled sensors. 
Others are tagging their boxes with clear liquid only visible under UV light. It's very difficult for professional beekeepers like us to keep our hives alive, and it's become increasingly difficult, which makes the theft even more uh, catastrophic to our industry. I mean, it takes us over a year to build a healthy hive, and so when it's stolen from us, it's not something we can easily replace. The supply of bees has been dropping, and the cost to rent a hive of the essential pollinators has soared, jumping from about $40 per hive two decades ago to as much as $230 per hive this year, likely motivators for the thefts. The insects are essential for pollinating food crops and keeping agriculture healthy. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Still to come, Beijing is taking action against two American defense contractors. The new penalties seem to counter the latest U.S. arms sale to Taiwan, but China is keeping the details quiet for now. And as much of the world eases pandemic restrictions, Hong Kong is doing the opposite. In line with Beijing's zero cases policy, the financial hub is boosting mandates and getting ready to test millions of citizens. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. The U.S.-China relationship is taking another hit this week. Beijing has announced new sanctions on two American defense contractors. The sanctions take aim at aerospace and defense companies Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. That's over the defense contractor's involvement in an arms sale to Taiwan. It's at least a third time the Chinese communist regime has enacted penalties against the two companies. Earlier this month, the Biden administration approved an over $100 million arms sale to Taiwan. The transaction is meant to help Taiwan maintain its air defense missiles so it can defend itself something the U.S. is bound by law to do, in accordance with the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act. A spokesman for China's foreign ministry condemned the deal as undermining China's sovereignty and security interests and called out the two companies of infringing acts. He explained that the countermeasures were taken according to the country's new anti-foreign sanctions law, but didn't elaborate on when and in what way the measures would be enforced. Beijing regards self-ruled island as a province of China and has been sharply critical of all U.S. arms sales to the island. In 2019 and 2020, China announced similar action toward Lockheed and Raytheon, but Beijing never gave details about what those sanctions were or how they would be enforced. The United States does not sell weapons to China. What's more, Beijing has been sending more and more military aircraft to fly around Taiwan in recent years. That intimidation tactic is coupled with attempts to use economic power to coerce other countries to cut ties with Taiwan. Now let's move over to Asia's pandemic front. With the UK announcing an end to all restrictions, Hong Kong is taking the opposite approach and stepping up preventative measures against the CCP virus, which causes COVID-19. Let's take a look at what's coming. The city is following Beijing's lead by adopting China's zero cases policy. The plan seeks to eliminate all infections inside the region rather than adapting to living with the virus like many other countries have opted to. The financial hub will roll out a new virus testing mandate starting mid-March. Under it, each of Hong Kong's 7.4 million residents would need to get tested three times. One million tests are set to be completed per day. 
virus spread has become more of an issue in the city this month, with daily infections having risen more than 60-fold since February 1st. Researchers at the University of Hong Kong originally predicted new infections could peak at just under 30,000 a day next month. But they updated that prediction just under two weeks ago, raising it six times higher to a staggering 180,000 per day. Right now, the city is reporting thousands of new cases each day, and the local health care system is already overwhelmed. With hospital beds in short supply, a number of patients, including the elderly, have been left lying on cots outside hospital buildings. A nurse working on the front line says some staff are angry at the lack of preparation. David Chan is a nurse and the chairperson of the Hospital Authority Employees Alliance. None of the hospitals had any plans in place. The hospital authority had not provided any instructions for how to handle it if cases were to escalate. In recent days, the city's hospitals have moved most patients indoors. But Chan says the system remains overburdened. But now we've been asked to place them all indoors. But you're just moving the problem from outdoors to indoors. So the situation we are facing is that many of the confirmed cases are now placed into ordinary wards. The city's chief executive, Carrie Lam, said Beijing would step in to help and build a temporary hospital. Despite Hong Kong's zero-case goal, authorities in the financial hub aren't considering a citywide lockdown, unlike many areas in mainland China, at least not at the moment. Hong Kong is the most densely populated city on Earth, with nearly 68,500 people per square mile. It's three times denser than New York City, four and a half times denser than Toronto, and nine times denser than Los Angeles. To cope with the lack of space, the majority of Hong Kong's residents live in high-rise apartment blocks. In Amsterdam, a gunman took hostages at an Apple store for about five hours earlier today. Police say they've ended the situation and arrested the gunman. It's unclear how many hostages the gunman took. The Apple store is located in the city center. Police sealed off the square nearby and had specialist units at the scene. They say several people had managed to leave the building but refused to give more details. The hostage taker later ran out of the building and was hit by a police car. He's currently being treated for his injuries. None of the hostages reported any injuries. And as COVID-19 restrictions are lifted in the UK, the British government says it's important to protect the most vulnerable. It will soon offer people aged 75 and over a fourth COVID shot. An expert says there is a strong possibility that COVID-19 shots will be given every fall, alongside flu vaccines for those who need it most. We've got more from NTD's Earl Rhodes. The government has announced a spring booster vaccine will be offered to those aged 75 and over, older care home residents and those over 12 who are immunosuppressed. The move could cover around 8 million people, with the rollout starting within weeks. The government's chief scientific advisor says it's important to protect the most vulnerable as measures are being lifted. These measures are going to be important to give the safety net and as um, an American colleague put it at the weekend. He said, you can celebrate when the sun's shining, but take your umbrella with you. And I think that's really the message. The Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation says other groups are also likely to be offered further doses in the autumn, and the vaccination programme could be extended to all over 50s. Asked if people could expect an annual jab, 
Professor Adam Finn from the JCVI told BBC Breakfast it's still an open question, but it's a strong possibility that we may have a wintertime campaign combined with the flu vaccine campaign going forward. On Tuesday, Health Secretary Sajid Javid told Sky News that people needed to remain cautious and vigilant, despite the lifting of restrictions. The government says it will also have a surveillance system to spot new variants. The Prime Minister's lifting of restrictions on Monday only happened after last-minute wrangling between Cabinet Ministers. There's no extra money in the plan for Javid's department, but he told BBC Breakfast that existing funding would cover the costs of ongoing testing and surveillance schemes. The lifting of restrictions comes as the European Council is set to approve a travel blueprint that will allow fully jabbed Britons into the EU without tests. The plans are designed to end the difficult regulations among EU countries, which caused confusion for UK holidaymakers. Earl Rhodes, NTD News. Prices are surging in the UK. The Bank of England says this will be the biggest single-year hit to living standards in 30 years. Some are resorting to turning off the heat to save money. After work in the evenings, British care worker Nicola Frape turns the heating off and huddles under a blanket with her daughter and a hot water bottle. Adding an extra layer costs nothing, she says, but leaving the boiler on drains her already stretched bank account. Following a decade of stagnant living standards, Frape is one of millions of normally financially comfortable Britons who are now facing a cost-of-living crisis. It's, there's just too much going up at once. It's all at the same time and people are feeling the pressure now. The pressure's just going to be even worse in April. So for days out or going out for treats, you know, cinema, going out for a meal, um, we've cut back on them now because you just don't know what you're going to need the extra money for. Surging prices are inflicting what the Bank of England says will be the biggest single year hits to living standards in 30 years. April is when energy bills are due to jump 54% to around £2,000 or around US$2,700 per year per household, only some of which will be offset by emergency government support. Inflation is soaring. Britain's consumer price inflation rate is set to top 7% in April. And tax increases kick in later in the year too. 52-year-old Jackie Gordon visiting this food bank in London says she often goes without food. Last night I went to bed hungry. I didn't have nothing to eat. I have to pay my bills. I have to I'm right behind with my rent and I don't want to get evicted. The government is hoping the cost of living squeeze, while sharp, will prove to be short. It will spread some of the fuel price increase over the coming years and cut a tax for people in lower value properties to provide support through 2022. But some economists warn 2022 is likely to leave a lasting mark on poorer households, even if inflation falls. Swiss bank Credit Suisse is in the spotlight after an investigative report alleges it managed accounts for human rights abusers fraudsters and businessmen who had been placed under sanctions. A consortium of media outlets, including The Guardian, published the investigative results of the data leak of accounts that have been held at the bank for decades. The New York Times says the data leak covered more than 18,000 accounts, collectively holding more than £73 billion. The revelations come only three years after Switzerland ditched a centuries-old culture of secrecy that made the Alpine state a global, no-questions-asked vault for the world's rich. 
Credit Suisse strongly rejected any allegations of wrongdoing. Coming back, we travel back in time to examine Africa's cultural contribution during antiquity. The professor says ancient Egypt, which is part of Africa, had deep connections to ancient Greece, which many call the birthplace of Western civilization. And a short window of time to see a famous glowing waterfall. The phenomenon occurs at Yosemite in February, and it's drawing eager crowds. February is Black History Month. It's a time to celebrate the achievements of African Americans and more broadly, those of the African diaspora. Tonight, we travel back in time to examine Africa's cultural contribution during antiquity, a part of history that's often overlooked. NTD's Jason Perry speaks with a professor who is chair of the Department of African Studies at Howard University. He explains that ancient Egypt, which is part of Africa, had deep connections to ancient Greece, which many call the birthplace of Western civilization. Yes, the Greeks learned a lot from Egypt, just as Egypt also learned from Greece and learned from other civilizations. Professor Mohamed Salio Kamara is a professor of history, philosophy, and journalism at Howard University, where he is also the chair of the Department of African Studies. He mentioned that Egypt is in Africa, and the ancient Egyptian civilization dates back from 3100 BC all the way to 30 BC. Uh, forgive my my Greek pronunciation, like uh, Hippocrates, like uh, Pythagoras, like Socrates, like Plato, like uh, Archimedes, and it's essentially from Herodotus that we learn that these and other uh, celebrated Greek scientists and philosophers did actually spend years in Egypt. Some of the subjects the Greeks studied in ancient Egypt included uh, mathematics, uh, including, you know, geometry, uh, arithmetic, trigonometry, but also uh, uh, astronomy, uh, geography, the transformation of the separation of mythology and rational philosophical thinking. He went on to say that when he traveled from West Africa to America to study, he did not go there with an empty mind. And the same was true for the Greeks when they went to Egypt. They went there because they already had something in them in terms of knowledge and in terms of thirst for knowledge. And the, uh, at that time, Egypt was known in Greece as the land of the gods. And we're talking about ancient civilizations here. When you say the land of the gods, you're not talking just about mythological uh, thing. It's also knowledge. It's a source of knowledge and so on. He explained that Egyptian civilization was African civilization and that Africans not only learned from other civilizations, but also contributed much to the world. Jason Perry, NTD News. Every year, crowds of people travel to Yosemite to see a unique firefall. The horsetail waterfall glows a brilliant orange when it's backlit by the sun. 
Sightseers and photographers flock to Yosemite National Park this time of year to witness the rare firefall. The phenomenon occurs when the sunlight hits the waterfall at just the right angle and creates the illusion that the falls are glowing as the water pours over the eastern edge of El Capitan Rock. It occurs for two weeks in mid to late February. Some visitors arrive five hours early just to catch the rare sighting. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.